the National Archives podcast series, Hidden Women, Uncovering the Veil of Silence During the Partition of Punjab, India, 1947, by Dr. Pippa Verdi. At the National Archives, we're very lucky to have uh, a vast array of documents relating to different ethnicities and different backgrounds of, of peoples and uh, historical um, knowledge. And as part of our diversity week, we're also very keen to showcase that. But we do this ongoing through the year anyway, and in part, that's done through the um, our museum, for example, and also through outreach exhibitions, which uh, travel schools and libraries and community settings. Uh, and one of the most important ways we, we work to try and disseminate the information we hold is through our website. And um, very pertinent to today's talk is that we have a newly, well, fairly newly launched uh, sort of resource, uh, education resource about partition, the partition of India and creation of Pakistan in 1947. And what I think what's very important to say is these exhibitions are not just for children or for formal educators. They're actually of relevance and of interest to many people. So um, we're hoping to add some oral history to those um, um, records soon. And as part of that, we will be including this podcast as well, so we'll get a sort of rounder feel of the personal experience as well. Our talks programme is one of the other ways that we try to communicate what we hold, and um, these are accessible to those who can't attend by podcast as well. And for today, we're very lucky indeed to have, doc to have Dr. Pippa Verdi, who's talking to us. Now, Pippa is actually senior lecturer at De Montfort University in Leicester, and she's going to be sharing with us first-hand accounts of Muslim Punjabi women whose lives were, in many cases, tragically shaped by the events of partition and its aftermath. And we certainly know, most of us, that the voices of women are very rarely heard. So it's, it's wonderful that we've got people here today to help to fill in some of the blanks. So I'll pass over to you now. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Sarah, for that introduction. I wanted to also thank Parveen as well for inviting me. Um, it is a pleasure to be here. I think, um, you know, for me, what I wanted to do was just kind of also j just give you an idea of how I started down this, uh, this road, which was actually back in 2000 when I started doing my PhD. And I started looking at um, the whole issue of violence, migration and resettlement in Punjab. But what I wanted to really do was try to compare East and West Punjab, the two kind of partition Punjabs, because it was an area which really scholars had not uh, touched upon previously at all. Part of the problem was the, uh, you know, the relationship between India and Pakistan, so travelling between the two borders became quite difficult. So I was in a quite a fairly privileged position to be able to uh, travel in both countries. So that's how my kind of study really started. And I wanted to do this through first-hand accounts. So, you know, I conducted um, numerous, probably in excess of 70 interviews with uh, people who were affected by partition. And it was th through these first-hand accounts that I think it was possible to kind of understand this very highly emotive issue. It was something that shaped both India and Pakistan, but actually more specifically, uh, the Punjabi uh, sentiment, you know, the Punjabi people who were affected uh, by this uh, by this very kind of formative event. But once I started doing this, what I realised was there was this huge kind of gap that women were really being uh, talked about, really being re researched in this area. I think to some extent, um, you know, it was being addressed more so in um, in India. But on the Pakistan side, it was really not an issue that was discussed at all or even research. So for me, you know, I really wanted to try to kind of understand this. So that was how I kind of got into this project, sort of post my kind of PhD research. I started to uh, begin to look at uh, Muslim women's experiences. And I suppose one of the things that I did find that, you know, when women were mentioned, it was often uh, only as victims of partition. So what I wanted to do was try to kind of understand these experiences uh, better. And so the kind of project is in a sense kind of expanded to not just to include partition, but actually also try to understand the social cultural upheaval wrought by this, uh, by this episode. 
And, you know, I've been lucky enough that uh, I got a British Academy grant and I was able to spend time in Pakistan. I think it's a very kind of, you know, difficult uh, situation in Pakistan. So most of my journeys were, you know, kind of revolved around what was happening in the kind of the, you know, in the politics of the country. But I was still lucky enough to be able to spend time there and uh, interview um, a number of women who ranged not just from kind of elite backgrounds, because I think their views are, are quite important and interesting, but also spending time in rural urban areas, literate, educated women, but getting that kind of broad spectrum of different, uh, different views. And I think, you know, just to sort of, I suppose, give you this kind of context, I think, um, is that I mean, I'm, I'm kind of assuming quite a lot of things. So if there is anything you want me to clarify, please feel free to do so um, afterwards. Um, just to kind of uh, flash up the kind of the map gives you an idea of where my research is located, which uh, focuses on the Punjab. But of course, Bengal was also divided um, at the same time when, um, uh, when the British departed. I think, uh, you know, in terms of the problems I've uh, sort of experienced is that in the official history books, you hardly find women being mentioned. And when I'm spending time looking at, um, at the archives, going through the documents, you rarely come, uh, come across these accounts of uh, women. And the only way really you start to uh, understand the way um, women were uh, affected or trying to sort of access women's history is through things like oral sources, a fiction, maybe autobiography and newspapers actually I found to be a very rich um, resource as well and some of those um, you know I've got quotes here you'll sort of see on the slides as well. So it was actually you know what you find is that while official history is being uh, has marginalised uh, and relegated women, unofficial accounts let us into this kind of window of women's lives. And, and that was really the kind of uh, the area I wanted to get into. And so, you know, while, you know, on the one hand, you have these kind of independence celebrations taking place, actually what's also happened at the same time is that the region of Punjab and actually, to a lesser extent, Bengal, because Bengal is slightly different. So I'm not really going to talk about Bengal at all, because the circumstances uh, were quite different to Punjab. Um, so the area of, uh, of Punjab was this kind of enveloped in scenes of mass violence, murder and uprooting. And it, what followed really was one of the largest migrations of the 20th century. You have kind of an estimated 15 million people who were uprooted during this time, um, during August 1947. And I suppose in a sense, it was the result of the kind of political leadership being unable to reconcile their differences during the closing days of imperial rule in India. I mean, just to give you an idea, um, of the numbers we're talking about. Um, I've got the figures for United Punjab, just to over 34 million population, and it gives you the composition, uh, religious composition. And of course, this was one of the problems about Punjab because you had not just two communities, but actually you had three communities because you had a sizable Sikh uh, community in the Punjab. And it was actually also their spiritual homeland as well, which ultimately rest, uh, went to Pakistan after, after partition. And then there's also a significant sort of, or a small minority of Christians as well. But you can see after uh, partition, after independence, by the 1951 census, there is a almost total migration of populations from one side to the other. Um, from being a very kind of mixed community, it becomes, uh, you know, a predominantly Muslim West Punjab and a non-Muslim East Punjab. And so this has actually kind of shaped that region to a large extent uh, post-independence, uh, post post-partition. Um, 
and it just you know this hopefully just gives you an idea of uh, of the numbers actually involved and if we sort of go into more detail this uh, is a the Punjab region or the Punjab province as it was um, before it was partitioned you've got the Radcliffe line which itself is quite a controversial border uh, line runs through that as it stands, um, the kind of shaded areas are the princely states which were semi-autonomous at the time, so they weren't under direct British rule, and the other areas were under direct uh, British rule. But it gives you an idea of the kind of the, uh, you know, the way it was partitioned. Um, east, the eastern wing is actually kind of shaped form consequently because it's been divided uh, into Haryana, uh, Himachal and present-day Punjab uh, in India. So it's kind of sh you know, been reshaped, changed a number of times. And these uh, places, you know, districts, cities, um, underwent an enormous amount of change following 1947. Uh, you know, places like Lahore or uh, Lalpur became predominantly refugee migrant cities. So, you know, the way the demographic impact of migration has is, is, is enormous. But I don't really want to kind of dwell on that too much uh, at this point. I think one of the things to, or one of the points to make about the communal violence is that it spread fairly quickly throughout the, the region. Um, and it wasn't something that sort of just started in Punjab. You could actually see signs of violence becoming a much more kind of prominent feature. I think even, you know, after, after the Calcutta riots in 1946, you begin to see that violence is becoming uh, a much, uh, playing a much greater role um, within, uh, within the kind of the politics of the time. And of course, the authorities should have, to some extent, kind of anticipated that they were losing control of law and order. And so, in a sense, you could have tried to kind of prevent that mass migration that took place. But of course, as we'll kind of see, that wasn't the case. And, um, and of course, what happens um, during that, uh, that kind of frenzy of August to September is that actually women bore most of the, um, most of the horrific uh, crimes that were committed. We've got first-hand accounts of women who were abducted, there were mass honour killings, um, women's bodies were being mutilated, uh, violated. So we're talking about horrific crimes against women being perpetrated at this time. And often it was across all three communities. It wasn't exclusively you know, one community that was involved. They were all involved. And of course, it was all done in the you know, with the aim of actually getting to the other community. I think one of the things about these accounts is that they have remained largely, uh, largely buried. And one of the reasons is that the nation states themselves were trying to kind of prioritise the immediate needs of the nation and to recover uh, the honour or the isert of the nation, um, which was quite important. So things like this often became kind of buried and it's only really recently that we've started to kind of see these accounts um, uh, emerge. And so what you have is actually a change taking place in, um, in partition studies. One of the things that started to emerge is not so much of this concern with the high politics, but actually trying to understand the human dimension. So trying to understand these voices from the margins. There's been also consequently this kind of much more awareness of the gendered and class dimensions. And I've just kind of mentioned some of the writers who've been at the forefront of, um, you know, you've got activists like uh, Uvashi Batalia, Menon and Basin, and they've done borders and boundaries again from a kind of very much from a feminist perspective. Andrew Major, and also subaltern studies again, sort of focusing on the kind of class dimension. So it's trying to actually look at uh, this whole issue, but from a human dimension, from the margins. And two things were probably pivotal in uh, generating this new 
new research. One of them was um, the assassination of Indira Gandhi in 1984, um, which then led to the anti-Sikh riots in Delhi. And what people were experiencing at the time in Delhi, a lot of the women were talking about, because remember in 1984, it wasn't so sort of far back you know, that people could not remember 1947. They were actually recalling the riots, the way women were being uh, used, abducted, raped, etc. It was resonating with them because it re reminded them of 1947. So the two events actually, for many people, brought those two events together. It was this kind of horrific reminder of the, of the past. The other has been the Golden Jubilee of Independence and in a sense what it's done is um, forced people to reassess this whole period and take a much more kind of reflective approach uh, in terms of trying to understand it. So these kind of changes within, you know, I think what we have within history is, is it's only natural that you have these kind of changes that take place. Um, it forces us to look at history, uh, revisit it, look at it with a fresh eye. It's the same events, but actually we're trying to understand them from a slightly different perspective. And it's really through this kind of new generation of writers, uh, such as Boudalia, Menon, and Basin, that you have taboo subjects which, uh, you know, such as violence, rape and abduction, which are now being uh, talked about. But I think significantly, they have also sought to give the victims of partition a voice by utilising oral narrative as a means of communicating their histories, personal accounts and experiences of people who witness um, this event haven't been in the public domain until such scholars began to delve deeper into the human dimensions of partition. So it's really through this kind of feminist um, you know, embrace of oral history, I think there has been um, this need to kind of revisit these events and try to look at um, uh, look at women's history. I think again, you know, when we're looking at traditional sources uh, within or traditional methodologies within history, often they overlook women. And in a sense, what oral history does is it gives us a way of reaching into these hidden histories. I think as a, as a historian myself, the, the success has been limited uh, to some extent because orthodox historians uh, still view oral history with some scepticism. So, you know, there is this kind of almost hierarchy within history as well when you're looking at sources and oral, uh, you know, oral narratives. Um, are not there at the kind of the top. But I think actually, interestingly, more and more people are embracing it and actually accepting it as a legitimate uh, source of trying to understand uh, certainly personal histories. So what I wanted to do um, was really uh, start with, um, with the official representation of women. What you do have is when you look at the documentation is that the official response to the issue of um, abducted women um, was to locate, repatriate them to their former homes and the Ministry of Refugees and Rehabilitation uh, was largely concerned with numbers. This is apparent in the fortnightly reports uh, that record the number of women that were found and exchanged between India and pa uh, Pakistan. This was a rather impersonal and uh, statistical approach adopted by both countries and consequently we know little about the details of the personal stories behind, uh, behind these numbers. The documents don't really detail their individual accounts, they don't provide any information about the lives that were torn in the process. Moreover, the documentation uh, process finishes once the women have been recovered. But what happens to them when they return to their families and indeed this is, there is a question mark over how many were actually accepted back into their families. These issues are not dealt with and thus remain hidden from the official representation of partition and its true, call, uh, the true cost. Um, I think when we look at the kind of migration, you can see that, you know, at, at its kind of height, 
the dislocation was huge. Um, you have this kind of mass migration taking place. Predominantly, actually, people, what they're doing is going by foot. And you've got, in terms of numbers, and by June 1948, about 5.5 million non-Muslims and 5.8 million Muslims who crossed the border in Punjab. And as I'd mentioned, the kind of, you know, there were signs um, of uh, trouble previously, yet the government actually doesn't, uh, doesn't preempt some of, uh, some of uh, the violence that's taking place and gripping the region. Interestingly, actually, um, you know, it's only August 14 is when, uh, when independence takes place. And it was actually only on 7th of September that uh, the at the emergency committee meeting between India and Pakistan that the movement of people was noted by the two governments. So it became a priority by 7th of September. So you can just see, actually, they had no idea that this was going to sort of take the scale that it, it did. They were unprepared. And within this, actually, it's by December the 6th that the first time women are mentioned. So the first time the governments of India and Pakistan decide to formally address the issue of women is even later. And of course, the majority of the migration has taken place between August and uh, November. I mean, these figures are from 23rd November. Um, there is still people uh, being, um, people are still uh, migrating, but uh, the vast majority takes place during this initial period. So for the government, actually, you know, that late in the stage uh, to start to kind of then think about about uh, women, and it's at the Inter-Dominion Conference on the 6th of de uh, December, where they decided that the work of rescuing these women and children and also evacuating converts from pockets should be carried out in earnest. And what they actually agree, they, uh, they have a treaty and they agree, uh, firstly, that every effort should be made to recover and restore abducted women and children within the shortest time possible. And second, conversion of persons abducted after the 1st, of 19, uh, 1st March 1947 will not be recognised and all such persons must be restored to their respective dominions. The wishes, and this is quite important, the wishes of the persons concerned are irrelevant. Consequently, no statements of such persons should be recorded before the magistrates. So following on from this, um, they begin this work of uh, recovering abducted persons and the government of India put forward an act which uh, tries to kind of locate these women, abducted women, and the pa government of Pakistan also then follows suit. What's interesting is this kind of definition of an abducted person. Um, and by that, they mean a male child under the age of 16 or a female of whatever age who is or immediately before 1st March 1947 was a Muslim and who or after that day has become separated from his or her family and is found to be living uh, or under the control of a non-Muslim individual or family. So there is this kind of clear definition of a woman of any age is uh, deemed to um, you know, is considered within this category, but actually a male child under under 16, 16 is only considered, you know, under these uh, guidelines. So there is this clear sort of definition um, and I suppose difference between male and female. And what you then see is, you know, within the, the press, and I was looking at the Pakistan Times, is that the local media makes many appeals, uh, you know, and talks about, you know, the kind of language they use is, you know, this, we can't ignore this, you know, the impunity, the sanctity attached to a woman's person, um, with firm resolve to leave no stone unturned in rescuing the adopted persons. Uh, you know, the public leaders in both the dominions have declared that this unfortunate victims of communal frenzy must be received with open arms. So every effort should be made to raise 
their unfortunate experiences and give them a happy homes. But more than that, it will close a tragic chapter in the history of the recent disturbances. And that's quite interesting, you know, how the recovery of women becomes associated with trying to have some sort of closure over the recent disturbances. And in a sense, that's kind of intrinsically, uh, you know, uh, linked with women's honour. And you see this in many of the kind of, um, you know, when I, when I was going through the newspapers, you see that point being made sort of a number of, of times. Um, you know, so there's this huge amount of, you know, talk about the restoration of the uh, nation's honour, which is linked to women's honour, or in this case, because they've been dishonoured, you need to recover that, uh, that whole process. So the process of recovering and restoring women was shrouded in almost a kind of paternalistic facade. So during these initial years of exchanges that took place between India and Pakistan, women's views were not taken into consideration. However, as the years progressed, it became more difficult to forcibly repatriate these women. So just to kind of give you an idea of the numbers, by 15th August 1955, you had almost 21,000 Muslim, uh, Muslim abducted persons who were recovered from India and restored to Pakistan. And for the same period, over 9,000 non-Muslim abducted persons were recovered from Pakistan and restored to India. Now, the actual figures may never really be, uh, you know, truly known because after eight years of efforts of trying to restore, recover and restore these women, um, I think many women found it difficult to, um, you know, give up their lives. It was a long time, you know, it, it, an episode that occurred in 1947, the government is still trying to find these women, take them back to their rightful homes. I think a lot of the women refused to go back. Um, and in the end, you know, the, the project of trying to recover and repatriate just kind of naturally sort of uh, closed down. And it's really difficult to assess the true scale of, of the crimes because, again, it's still a highly kind of emotive issue, a t you know, a difficult subject, very sensitive uh, to people, you know, to talk about openly. So you never actually know the scale of it because people won't talk about this issue openly. Yet, you know, the women that I was speaking to, many would sort of talk about, yeah, we know of so-and-so. They wouldn't sort of tell you exactly who it is, but they would tell you, yes, I know so-and-so's daughter or friend. You know, it would always be a kind of a third person. They would talk about incidences like this that happened. Everyone was aware, but it's kind of very much kind of hidden. I think one of the things, you know, through this is that, as I mentioned, you know, it's an area that is very much kind of looks at women as victims. But what I wanted to try to do was look at women not just as victims during this, but actually what were they doing? Were they in their, those public spaces? And one of the areas where we do witness women's agency at work is through their help in refugee camps and the rehabilitation of refugees. So finding um, you know, official documentation that draws attention to the voluntary work of refugee camps is limited. And the, really the only way to understand women's contribution is being through um, these newspaper accounts that, uh, or even biographical accounts. And I found the Pakistan Times, um, you know, to be a really rich resource of, um, of information. It kind of captures the contemporary mood, also highlights the variance between the official documentation and the work done by women in a voluntary capacity. And if I just kind of give you uh, an idea, one of the accounts that I quoted was um, this one over here, which actually I thought was quite interesting because what it talks about is these kind of individual acts of courageousness and women's agency. So rather than being just these kind of passive victims of partition, um, this account I thought was quite illuminating. So it's within this kind of context of, um, you know, a local uh, meeting in a, a in a village area where Reverend David 
paid special tribute to two women, one the wife of the headman who had saved the entire non-Muslim population of a village by standing over her two daughters. Taqwa in hand, she swore on the Holy Quran that she would kill both her daughters at the first sight of a non-Muslim. The other, uh, at the first murder of a non-Muslim, the other was a woman who on hearing an attack from a neighbouring village um, collected the Hindu women in her house. When on entry into her house was being forced, she hugged the barrel of the assailant's gun to her bosom and dared him to fire. On this, the shame of the folk of the village were put to shame. I think what this account did for me was it highlighted the ways in which women weren't merely victims uh, of those crimes unleashed by partition, but actually quite prominent and asserted um, their own authority. I think from this, what we, from the kind of full report, um, what I could surmise was that this, uh, you know, was a village heading one of the women, uh, certainly the first women, because virtue of her husband being the headman, you know, she would have commanded some local uh, respect as well. So therefore, you know, she was a figure to some extent of authority as well. There is little to suggest that um, in terms of information, there's little to suggest who the other woman is. But it is likely that both these women weren't educated and thus for them to kind of take a stance like this to save the lives of non-Muslim women was actually quite a courageous thing to do. So having these kind of individual accounts which, you know, when you start kind of pinning them sort of together, it kind of gives you a different sort of picture. It's talking about sort of empowering sort of women um, in a sense, you know, you don't see these representations of women in other areas. Um, so just to kind of, you know, scan through the newspapers and come across this material is kind of wonderful. I think, you know, the other way that women were empowered was trying to make themselves sufficient. And again, this is from, uh, you know, uh, one of the reports, which is trying to make refugee women, self-supporting and earning members of society. The government will bear all expensive of the students while they receive uh, here training in cutting, sewing, knitting, to uh, toy making, weaving, hand embroidery, etc. And you can see that, you know, uh, it talks about Begum Shamin, herself a refugee from Jalandhar, is the headmistress with 10 other teachers to help her. It is expected that a literary class for adults will soon and be started here. So this is just an example of the numerous kind of projects that were going on to try to help women uh, become more self-sufficient, trying to give them skills uh, which, again, if we're talking about especially abducted women, I think it's quite important that they would have tried to make themselves sufficient. There were also plans of how they set up marriage brewers where they would try to find them suitable sort of you know, partners and in a sense sort of rehabilitate them. Um, but, you know, these sort of, uh, you know, sewing, knitting, etc. These were small ways in which, you know, women were trying to um, be empowered during this period. And it was often actually behind this, it would often be elite women. Uh, for example, uh, you know, Begum Likatatin Khan's uh, wife, who, who was the prime minister at the time, she was very active in, the, in this sort of social work and made numerous appeals to get women to participate and contribute to the rehabilitation of refugees. And so, you know, even in refugee camps, uh, you know, college students were encouraged to come and help the refugees. And it was a way, I mean, I almost kind of compare it actually uh, a little bit to World War Two, you know, when the kind of the, there was this call by the nation, you know, where women were needed to come in and help in jobs in areas where, you know, especially men were not around. So it's almost that kind of calling for women, especially, you know, when the Muslim League, which I'll kind of talk about briefly, um, you know, there is this need to get women out in the public domain. But what's interesting actually is how it's not just you know, elite women, but actually ordinary women who are being encouraged. This was this kind of wonderful story which um, I came across in there. It just shows you how, you know, all the women were working collectively to kind of help the destitute. So this was 
A story, knitting in public buses cannot be avoided this year because of the shortness of time at our disposal to do something for the refugees. It is, however, a good thing not to carry your knitting in hand while walking towards a bus. Only the other day, a woman narrowly escaped being completely run over while trying to pick up her ball of wool, which uh, had rolled over while she tried to get onto a bus. Now, you know, a few things struck me about this. One was that you've got a woman who's walking towards a bus, which at the time, you know, we're talking in 1947, it shows that women were there in the public, uh, using public transport to get out and about. So they weren't completely kind of hidden. The other thing is actually knitting. It's a very kind of basic skill. It's something that ordinary women can get involved in. And that was the whole point. They were trying to encourage ordinary women to become involved in this kind of process of rehabilitation. And of course, it highlighted the impending winter and you had a lot of refugees who would need um, warm clothing or quilts because this was advertised by Selma's, uh, Selma's crazy quilt. That's the, that's the dress at the bottom, uh, you know, because she's making an appeal for, um, for these knitted patches. So it becomes kind of clear that, you know, certain women, usually elite to middle class, were, were visible in, the, in these public spaces. But actually, when you start looking at them closely, you find that it's not just elite women, but ordinary women are also uh, finding some form of uh, being addressed uh, addressed in the in, in the public domain. So I think that was something that really kind of fascinated me about um, about the newspaper accounts, and it just gives you a kind of a taster of what uh, what is in there. But I think finally, I wanted to kind of go into these um, oral accounts because I've spent a lot of time uh, interviewing women. But one of the things um, that became really apparent to me when I was conducting interviews with women in Pakistan was not so much that their voices were silent from the history pages, but they themselves actually felt their voices didn't matter. And this was, um, you know, highlighted to me during a number of interviews where women saw themselves as passive individuals who had nothing of worth to share. And one of the interviews I did, um, it was a lady who was from a kind of relatively deprived um, background, living in a densely populated building. We got to the top of the building and we were warmly greeted. She'd migrated from, near, from nearby Vaga border. And she was quite reluctant to talk. Um, partly it appears because her brother was there at the, at the interview. And partly also she felt that her views that sorry that his views were more important than hers so when i asked her about how she found out about the disturbances her brother mumbled in the background and he said quote well now i don't have permission to talk otherwise i could have explained everything so i said to him that you know i was just trying to record women's experiences and wanted them to explain things in their own voice um, and she responded well you know what can i tell you i can't recall anything and then consequently, the brother goes on to explain what had happened and what prompted them to leave. His explanation included political analysis for the disturbances, which most likely informed retrospectively and through informal discussion. Throughout the interview, uh, her brother remained present, sometimes remaining silent, sometimes contributing to the interview. He tried to take over, it seems, not so much because he didn't want his sister to talk to me, but because he thought he had more knowledge and therefore a discussion with him would be more beneficial to my research. So in a sense, he thought, uh, you know, he would be of more, more use to me. But I think for me, it kind of highlighted the many ways in which women's voices have become marginalised to the extent that they've become totally silent. And the case highlighted one of the problems with trying to interview women, especially literate women and those in rural areas, um, because they themselves feel they haven't actually got anything off worth to say. And so that kind of conditioning, that social conditioning that's taken place is that, 
they have little of value. And once you actually start talking to them, because, you know, having done other interviews, you do find that they start opening up. And actually, they've got quite a lot to say about things. But it's actually getting it past that kind of initial hurdle where, you know, most of them say, well, you know, what do I know? I don't know anything. Um, and of course, you know, this kind of starkly, um, you know, differs with another example I wanted to give you. This was a lady who um, is from privileged background, well-educated, politically active. Uh, she's part of, you know, the political elite in Pakistan. And she com revealed a completely different dimension to women's lives in 1940s Lahore. So she talks about the early uh, political act activism encouraged by Jinnah. So what she talks about is, um, I'll read her quote here. She says in an interview I did with her in 2008, well, the Muslim League women uh, were quite motivated. They were rich and educated women of Rosebud. They were the wives of lawyers and wealthy educated persons. In fact, a bunch of women were involved in the Muslim League. The Muslim League only became a popular party in the closing days of the Raj. My grandmother was a very dominating personality. She, uh, she attended the Muslim League's meeting, meetings without telling my father and grandfather. She often went with the other women of the Muslim League. At that time, there was great fun. We enjoyed it a lot. There was dance, songs and small talk all the time. And then, you know, I asked her about, you know, how she travelled um, and whenever she uh you know her uh, her grandmother went out in public she would always wear she says uh, an afghani burqa i also had to wear it at the time she says um with the burqa it was the only chance to go outside so um you know there were kind of these limitations but actually it meant that they were able to participate and they were able to engage uh it politically and then she says, when I got a scholarship for America, my grandfather did not know about America. They sent me, I, I wore the burqa till the aeroplane and then I threw it off and she laughs. I think the partition benefited my kind of women who did not want burda and got rid of that kind of, um, kind of uh, restriction. And... I think you know she's she's very much. I mean, even now, you know, she she doesn't uh, she doesn't wear any sort of veil or anything. She's very kind of active, but I think in a sense, what she's talking about is that kind of opportunity that period presented to uh, to women. You know, participating in these activities, becoming part of that national fold, becoming public figures in their own right. A lot of women, you know, were encouraged by Jinnah. Uh, to actually come out and I think you know when he assumed when Muhammad Ali Jinnah assumed the helm of the Muslim League he envisaged the partition of women as important in advancing the goals of the party and thus he sought to push the boundaries of women's emancipation I think what's interesting about Jinnah is actually um, that when he was studying in London, um, the suffragettes were around demanding uh, the right to vote. And he was actually genuinely interested and supportive of women's rights. And you can see that, you know, this is um, a quote taken by him, 1940, how he talks about, I have always maintained that no nation can ever be worthy of its existence that cannot take its women al along with the men. No struggle can ever succeed without women participating side by side with men. There are two powers in the world. One is the sword and the other is the pen. There is a great competition and rivalry between the two. There is a third power stronger than both, that of women. I mean, it, he undoubtedly, you know, asserts the kind of the strength and the need for women. And in a sense, what he's doing is following on from, you know, the uh, Indian National Congress as well, you know, and Gandhi's call for sort of getting women much more kind of involved in the mass um, nationalist movement. And you can see by 1944, his, um, you know, four years uh, later, he still went further and he talks about we are all victims of evil customs it is a crime against humanity that our women are shut up within the four walls of the houses as prisoners there is no sanction anywhere for the deplorable condition in which our women have to live 
And I think, you know, there is this genuine desire by Jinnah to see women shed their veils and venture beyond the kind of four walls, or in Punjabi is kind of known as the Char Divari, a very kind of famous sort of, you know, talks about those kind of four walls and being kind of confined within that space. But I think he was also aware that, uh, you know, that realizing the political ambitions of the Muslim League re required this mass partic participation by, uh, by women. And Muslim women until then had on the whole been in a condition of purda, which meant that they were secluded from public life. Yet there was a call for them to shed that and join uh, join the political political struggle. And again, you can see these kind of you know I can certainly see this this kind of resonate with that kind of call for women in World War Two, getting them to come out. The only kind of difference, of course, is that you know I think here it, it did have a kind of an impact, a longer term impact. But of course, I think with both events, what you also have is that once that you know, period is over, there is almost this expectation that women then just go back and reassume, pick up their lives where, where they left it off. But of course, you know, so much has happened since then that it's kind of impossible. And I think at the forefront of this, um, you know, you do have these kind of uh, elite women involved. You know, one of them was Jinnah's sister, uh, sister Fatima Jinnah. But then you also had people like Begum Rana, Likat Ali Khan, and Begum Shah Nawaz, etc. You know, these were all sort of models. They were elite, but they were model, models for other women. So they kind of offered, in a way, a role model for other people to kind of fo uh, follow suit. And I think in 2008, I was fortunate enough to meet one of these women still alive and able to uh, recount the those kind of days of the Muslim League's demand for a separate state. Um, Fatma Shugra, as a young 14-year-old in 1947, was inspired by the message of um, these Muslim League uh, women, and she convinced her father that she wanted to be involved in the movement along with the other women. She recalled that a huge um, that at a huge gathering in Lahore, hundreds of women had gathered around the Punjab Secretariat building. And this is a um, quote um, by Fatma Shukra. What I'll do is I'll read the quote. So she says, I, along with my friends, reached the assembly hall that day. I saw at that time a big crowd was shouting and chanting slogans, Zindabad Muslim League, Zindabad Qaidiyazm, Bankirega Pakistan. So, you know, talking about sort of pro-Pakistan slogans. I think it was a... It was in February or March 1947. I remember the day I removed the Union Jack and re replaced it with the Muslim League flag. Many Muslim women who had previously never stepped outside uh, from their homes came out to their houses and took over the streets of the city. This was happening because the Begums, the elite Muslim women, went door to door and convinced the Muslim women to come out from their homes for the protests. I don't know what sort of passion was inside me at the time. I just jumped over the secretariat building and that's when she kind of replaced it with, um, with the green flag. And I think this is something, you know, which in the kind of the psyche of the kind of Pakistan nation, it's a very kind of important event, kind of taking down the Union Jack and replacing it uh, with the Muslim League flag. And Fatma Shugra was awarded a gold medal for her services, the first of its kind in Pakistan. And she became really a kind of um, symbolic of that time, you know, uh, her image of hosting the Muslim League flag is replayed every year during the Independence Day celebrations. The inspiration is real for for after the creation of Pakistan, women did continue to extend the boundaries of their rights and were increasingly visible in, uh, in the public life. But I think one of the things is um, the dreams of this generation have hardly been fulfilled. And in the post-1979 period, especially uh, a watershed in the wider Islamic world as well as Pakistan, there is a dramatic change in attitudes towards women. Zia al-Haq, who came in after his coup in 1970, uh, his military coup in 1977, pursued a policy of Islamization, 
um, that gathered pace during the 1980s. And the impact on women was particularly felt around the Hadood ordinances, which made it very difficult to distinguish between adultery and rape and impossible for women to prove rape. This kind of whole process, I think, and that kind of Zia period really undermined the position of women and created a climate of intimidation, even under the government, uh, you know, even when it was headed under Benazir Bhutto, the ordinances remained in place, only being repealed uh, in 2006. So I think, you know, from that kind of early sort of period of optimism to those kind of final sort of um, days, and I think I just wanted to kind of finish with this picture, you know, of uh, Jinnah with the Muslim League uh, Women's National Guard. Unfortunately, I don't have a, a reference for that picture. But what's quite interesting is, you know, with Jinnah's patronage, they formed this uh, during the Pakistan movement. And this later became the Pakistan National Guard. But interestingly, you know, this uh, later on also becomes a kind of a source of criticism of the way, you know, you can see the women kind of presented uh, here, the deputas, you know, draped around them as scarves. But actually, increasingly, this this sort of imagery becomes under, uh, you know, under sort of uh, under Zia's time, it becomes quite problematic. So, you know, there there are huge issues affecting women really, because you've, if you trace that kind of history of the 1940s, where you see women becoming quite prominent, you know, in in the public domain, trying to kind of come out. And that change then that takes place, you know, for 30 years, things are kind of, you know, progressing. However, by 1977 and by the 1980s, there's almost a kind of retrograde, uh, retrograde step that's taken place. And I think whilst when Fatima Shugra, she vaulted the Secretariat building to hoist the flag of the Muslim League in 1947, I think she craved for self a revered place in Pakistan's history the doors that were opened in that period for women to enter public space and social life are now for many of their daughters and granddaughters being threatened and clo uh, with closure. If women are truly to kind of move beyond the confines of the four walls and make their contribution, I suppose one way to do it is, you know, certainly through education, a sense of belonging, ownership of the country that it brings, I think, but of course, that process has become stalled. And when we look to the future, I think there's kind of problems in the future as well. But I don't want to really kind of dwell on that too much. But I think when we look at it historically, this period, the 1940s, full of optimism, you know, full of hope, um, yet actually the kind of period after that, um, things don't quite sort of materialise the way the, the Pakistan, you know, was envisaged. So I'll just kind of finish there. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 21st of September 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>